with me to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7, we don't uh, have a 4th of July message as such, although I think many of the things that we're going to look at this morning certainly apply to us in the day in which we live. As we come to uh, Nehemiah chapter 7, we're going to look at faithfulness in vigilance. Faithfulness in vigilance. And these are days in which we need to be vigilant. Uh, we come to chapter 7. I admit uh, that uh, it's really would be a lot easier to gloss over this chapter. Uh, if you do a quick glance there, uh, you'll know probably why we wouldn't read this for our scripture reading uh, this morning. Uh, because the chapter is a long chapter, but it's filled with many, many names which are hard to pronounce. And it appears to uh, to be one of those gene- genealogy type chapters which uh, doesn't have much to say. But if we look closely, I believe there are some valuable truths here for us to glean from the apparently boring portion of Scripture. In the first half of the book, verses chap- uh, chapters one through six, I should say, the focus was in reconstruction. Now, as we uh, come to uh, and look kind of back over what we've uh, read uh, or talked about. We know chapter 1 was about knowing how to pray. Chapter 2 was how to tackle a tough job. Chapter 3, we talked about building together. Chapter 4, we uh, preached uh, two messages on. One was defeating discouragement. The other one was responding to opposition. And then chapter 5 was dealing with strife. And then chapter 6, dealing with distractions. And now... The emphasis of chapter 7 has the focal point of re-instruction, not reconstruction, but re-instruction in the rest of the book. We find uh, that we're moving from rebuilding the city to rebuilding the people. Today we want to look at faithfulness and vigilance. It's one thing to build ourselves up in our faith, and it's another thing to continue and being watchful that we dare not let slip or allow our lives to fall into a state of disrepair and uselessness. Here in Nehemiah, at this point, the walls have been completed, the gates are restored, the enemy has been annoyed. Uh, it's always success when you can annoy the enemy, right? Uh, but uh, uh, Nehemiah's work was not finished. He had to practice the truth that Paul emphasized in Ephesians 6 and verse 13, and having done all to stand. Uh, Nehemiah had been steadfast in building the walls and resisting the enemy, and now he had to be steadfast in consolidating, conserving the gains. And John warned in 2 John and verse 8, Look to yourselves that you lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. A city is much like, uh, much more than walls. Of course, we don't have walls around cities these days. Uh, uh, yet to find the wall that's around Spooner. Uh, but uh, there may be a few uh, houses that have a wall or a fence around them. Uh, but uh, a city is much more than walls and gates and houses. A city is a people. In the first half of this book, the people existed for the walls, and now the walls exist for the people. 
It was time to organize the community so that the citizens could enjoy the quality of life that God wanted them to live or to have. And God had great things in store for Jerusalem. For one day, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would walk the city streets. He would teach in the temple and outside the city walls. And so we have three important steps that we must take to protect the people and the work that has been done. First of all, Nehemiah enlisted leadership. He enlisted leadership. Now, Napoleon was not a man we often think about as a great man to follow or anything like that, but he did uh, get the title of a dealer in hope. Not a dealer in dope, but a dealer in hope. Uh, and uh, he uh, certainly would, uh, in that sense, that title is what I want us to focus on a little bit here, because Nehemiah certainly fits that description. He was a dealer in hope. Uh, before the work began, he inspired people by assuring them that God would prosper their efforts in chapter 2. And when the people were afraid, he prayed that God would strengthen them in chapter 6. And when the enemy threatened, Nehemiah stood his ground and he called their bluff and the work was completed in 52 days to the glory of God. Now I want us to see here, there are three groups of people that Nehemiah enlists. Was He enlists some leadership here. And I want you to jump to verse 2 and note, first of all, the assistance. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 7 that I gave my brother Hananiah and, ha- and Hananiah, the, uh, Hananiah and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. And he was a faithful man and feared God above many. He was a faithful man and he feared God above many. And so... And the, the first group that he enlists were some assistants. And like all good leaders, Nehemiah knew that he couldn't do the job alone. One of his first official acts was to appoint two assistants, his brother Hananiah and then Hananiah, who uh, was in charge of the palace. The palace was a fortress in the temple area, guarding the north wall of the city, which was especially vulnerable to, to attack. And Hananiah and Hananiah would work with Rephaphiah the, and Shalem, uh, rulers of the districts in the city. Now, why was Nehemiah convinced that these men would be good leaders? They had two wonderful qualities. Number one, they were faithful to God. And secondly, they feared God. Someone has said the greatest ability is dependability. And I'd say amen to that. If we truly fear the Lord, we will be faithful to do the work that he's called us to do. When leaders fear people, instead of gearing God or fearing God, they end up getting trapped and that leads to failure. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man bringeth a snare, and whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. I thank the Lord for those who faithfully serve here in our church. Not only as Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and various other offices that we have, our deacons and so forth, You see, if you're going to be a leader in God's work, we must be faithful, and there's a certain standard that must be followed. And what is that standard? Well, it's right here in our Bibles. God says it is required 
to be faithful. Now, can you be dependent upon? Can your family depend upon you? Can your fellow church members depend upon you? Can God commend, uh, depend upon you? Are you faithful this morning? Faithful to God, and they feared God. These were the assistants that he chose to uh, get uh, the job done. Then he had some gatekeepers. Go back to verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass when the wall was built, I had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed. Verse 3, And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches over the, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every one in his watch, and every one to be over against his house. The gatekeepers, or the porters, were the watchmen. They were to guard the, the city all around the wall, letting those on the inside know what was going on on the outside. If the enemy or some danger would approach, they would sound an alarm. They watched both day and night. It was a 24-hour job. And what good are strong new gates if nobody's going to guard them and control who enters or who leaves the city? What good are the walls if the gates are open to every foe who wants to enter the city? The gatekeepers were given very specific instructions as to when to open and when to close those gates. To open the gates early in the morning would only invite the enemy to come in while the the city was still asleep and unprepared. To close and lock the gates without guards on duty might give the enemy agents opportunity to slip in unnoticed. The standards for this job were also high. But we find that some of the rules that were set up were not enforced as they should have been. And the guards of the wall were not to be indifferent to who came and who went inside the city walls. Now I believe we also realize that we here in our ministry must be on our guard. On the one hand, we certainly welcome people to come into our services. And we've had very little in the way of requirements. We would say that virtually everyone is welcome to come. And when it comes to leadership and service, there must uh, come some distinct scriptural lines drawn if a person who claims to be a believer. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, it says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such one not to know not to eat. I think we, most of us would agree that we must make doctrine a top priority for instance we cannot make leaders of those who deny the inerrancy of the scripture Uh, we cannot uh, make them script uh, spiritual leaders and fellowship with them and worship paul is not dealing with doctrine when he says that we shouldn't keep company with one who's a a fornicator he's talking about a man or a woman in a church who will not deal with their sin in their life fellowship has has been based on doctrine, and rightly so. We break fellowship with those who do not agree with us in doctrinal issues. But Paul is stating here that conduct is a basis of breaking fellowship as well as doctrine. We emphasize doctrine as as well as it should be. But what about people's morals? When Paul writes not to keep company with a brother who is a fornicator or, a, or covetous, he's not referring to doctrine. What about a man who is a, 
who is money hungry? What about a man who is not honest in his dealings? Are we to have fellowship with them? And so doctrine and conduct are to be taken into consideration concerning fellowship and certainly be consideration and standards for leadership. And so there has to be some gatekeepers, some to watch and to make sure that the right uh, uh, things are going on. Then there's a third group, and those are the singers. Now you say, well, I'm not in that group. Well, whether you can sing or play an instrument or not, we're going to find in the next chapter that Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The spirit of praise is the spirit of power. Now this means we should be a rejoicing group of people. Are you rejoicing in the Lord this morning? If so, then some of you need to notify your faces. No, actually, I'm not talking about just smiling and having a happy face. I'm talking about having the joy of God's word in your life. I'm talking about having the joy of salvation in your life. You know, when people have real joy, they'll look forward to the preaching of God's word. They'll look forward to being in God's word every day. People who are rejoicing in the Lord will be looking for opportunities to tell someone else about it. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 and 19 says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now you might not be able You think, well, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. But you certainly can have a song in your heart. The word psalms there means to praise. The word hymn there means to ascribe perfection to deity. I wonder, is that a characteristic in your life? Do you praise God? Do you ascribe perfection to God? I came across a motto not long ago, and it said, Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. When you're walking in the will of God, you're in the center of his will, and you're having sweet fellowship with him, you'll have joy in your life. Listen, if God's people don't protect what they've accomplished for the Lord, the enemy's going to come in, and he's going to take over. We need to heed Paul's admonition in having done all to stand. What a tragedy that churches that were once true to the faith and were faithfully preaching the gospel now are denying the faith and preaching another gospel. Every Christian ministry is one short generation away from destruction. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Churches that were once standing for God and doing a great work for God are almost empty or are not doing anything for the Lord. We must be on guard. We need guards at the gate. We need faithful men and women who will not allow false Christians to get in and take over a ministry. We need watchers on the walls to warn us when the enemy is approaching. Christian uh, parents need to guard their homes lest the enemy gets in and captures their children. And it is while God's servants are asleep and are overconfident that the enemy comes in and plants its own counterfeits. Nehemiah enlisted some leadership, and this is the kind of leaders, these are the kind of leaders he enlisted. Now notice he also established citizenship here. Now in verses 4 
through 69. This is a section here that uh, uh, parallels Ezra chapter 2. We went through the book of Ezra before we went through Nehemiah. And we talked a little bit about this. We compare these two lists. You'll find that some of Nehemiah's names and numbers differ from those recorded nearly a century before while the exiles returned from Babylon. It's not uh, necessarily an, an error uh, in the Bible necessarily, but uh, we do find that it is probably according uh, because of human error uh, in the, record, the recording of these lists. Ezra 2 is the true list. Nehemiah is reporting that he found a list, and it happened to have some errors in it. In verse 5, he said, I found a register of the genealogy of them which came up the first and found written therein. And then he gives goes through all these lists of names. Now, this section with all the difficult names and uh, seems to be boring to most Bible students. You know, we, we get to this in our Bible reading and we just kind of skim through it. And we think, boy, I don't know how to pronounce that name. I don't know how to pronounce that name. And what do these people mean uh, to me? I, I don't, they're, they're not in my family. Uh, they're not my family tree. So I, I don't know who these people are. But again, we're tempted to say just, well, let's just skip over it. And while we not going to read all the names this morning. I do believe there's some significant truth here that we can examine. Genealogies over the years have been important to the Jews in proving their ancestry. And not being able to prove your ancestry meant a second-class citizenship and a separation from all that God had given to Israel. So Nehemiah wanted to populate the holy city with citizens who knew that they were Jews. And so as you go through these verses, you'll find various groups of people listed here. You'll find leaders, for, for instance, in verse 7. You'll find the number, I say, of the men of the people of Israel was this. He, he, he come, talks about Zerubbabel and Jeshua and Nehemiah and uh, Ramiah and, and so forth, uh, Mordecai. Uh, he, he finds all these leaders here uh, are mentioned. Actually, verse 7 has 12 men who have been representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, even though 10 tribes were assimilated by the Assyrians and were the, of the northern kingdom that was captured in 722 B.C., the Nehemiah mentioned here is not really thought to be the author of this book since these men lived nearly a century before. But it appears that these are the elders who helped Zerubbabel, the governor, establish the nation. And then you have families. Uh, you have listed a various families or clans in verses 8 through 25, along with the number of people in each family who returned to the land. In verses 27 and 28, the list of people according to their villages. It's interesting, the largest group in the entire list came from Sena'ah, Sena'ah, uh, verse 38, a, a town whose location really is kind of a mystery. Uh, it must have been a large community. Probably 4,000 people came from there. But the name means hated, which may refer to them being lower class Jewish uh, society. Uh, but whoever they are, they worked on the walls. They were a part of what was going on, the ministry here. Uh, they helped to restore this city. And I think it's interesting that today in our mobile population, we have many people who have, don't care about their hometowns anymore. I mean, most of us here today probably are not in our hometown. There's a few of you who are actually from Spooner. Okay? Anybody here from Spooner? One, two, three, you know, a handful. 
The rest, where's the rest of you? I mean, you're from all over the place. I'm from Kansas. Uh, and uh, the folks here were complaining. They visited Kansas, and they said it's too hot there. How can you stand it, you know? Well, we live with it. But most of us are not in our hometown, and we really have no, uh, no uh, care about our hometown anymore. Our uh, hometown, our, uh, my wife and I went to the same high school, and we, uh, they're having a celebration. We probably won't go. You know, this, they're having a 100-year celebration in October. Uh, we probably won't go. We won't spend the money to go back and do that. Probably don't know anybody there anymore anyway. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, it's true that home is wherever one works. I mean, uh, right now, Spooner's my home. Uh, it's not always been my home, but it is now. And the, and the town you live in, the place you live, is your home. It's wherever you work, no matter where your original roots were planted. But in spite of the local uh, loyalties, these Jews put uh, the good of Jerusalem first. And so there's families. And then there's another group. There's the priests in verses 39 to 42. There's the Levites in verse 43. There's the temple singers in verse 44. And then there's the porters, the doorkeepers we mentioned already in verse 45. And then the Nethanims there in uh, uh, verses 46 through 60. Now these were other temple uh, servants. Uh, they may have been prisoners of war, those who uh, relieved the Levites in the heavy work of cutting the wood and drawing the water. And then there were those of unknown genealogies, verses 61 through 65. And for the priests, this would mean being cut off from the temple ministry and uh, the income it provided from the tithes and offerings of the people. But the law of Moses made it clear that only those whose family line was clearly in the family of Aaron could minister at the altar. Then you have servants in verse 67. There's a miscellaneous group of servants had been treated kindly by their Jewish masters. They'd traveled with them to Judea. And even the animals are mentioned here because they were important to the Jewish economy as well. The work of rebuilding the nation. Now, as I mentioned, if you compare Ezra's account with this account, and you do the math, you come up with some different numbers. But the important thing is, not the count of the people, but to realize that people counted. Okay? The important part is not the count of the people, but that people counted. In leaving Babylon, they did much more than just put their names on a list. They laid their lives on the altar and they risked everything to obey the Lord and restore this nation. They were pioneers of the faith. They trusted God to enable them to do the impossible. And in relation to our own ministry, I believe membership in a Bible-believing church is important. And, and, but more than that, having your name on the list is important as what you're willing to do to surrender your life to the Lord and be faithful to the work of God that He would have you to do. So we see an enlisted leadership. We see an established citizenship. And then lastly, Nehemiah encouraged worship in verses 70 to 73. In verses 70 to 73, and, and some of the chief of the fathers gave unto the work 
The Tershatha uh, gave to the treasury a thousand drams of gold, fifty basins, uh, five hundred and thirty priest garments, and some of the chief fathers gave the treasure of the work twenty thousand drams of gold and two thousand and two hundred pound of silver. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver and three score and seven priest garments. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nethathims and all the Israel dwelt in their cities. And who uh, and when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Citizenship and leadership together make a state, but it takes worship to make that state a godly nation. Someone has written, the worth of a state in the long run is the worth of the individuals composing it. But the worth of the individual depends on his or her relationship to God. And this involves worship. If individual godliness declines, the morality of the nation declines. And that is certainly true in our nation today. Again, the parallel passage is Ezra chapter 2, which tells us that some of the Jewish leaders gave generously to the temple ministry. But Nehemiah informs us that the governor, in verse 70 here, and some of the common people also gave offerings to the Lord, and it was only right that the leaders set the example. Now, 1,000 drams would be like 19 pounds of gold, and 20,000 drams in verse 71 and 72 are about 375 pounds. It seems obvious that some of the Jewish leaders had left Babylon as wealthy men with precious metals and servants. But within a few years, the economy failed and the nation was in great depression. But all of this money would have been useless were it not been for uh, the God-appointed ministers of the temple, the priests, the Levites, the singers, and their helpers. And I want you to notice that it was the seventh month when Israel expected to observe the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of the Tabernacles. That could not have been a better time for Nehemiah to call his people together to honor the Word of God, to confess their sins, to dedicate themselves to the work of the Lord. Now, what began as concern in chapter 1 led to construction in chapters 2 and 3, And then conflict in chapters 4 through 7, and now it's a time for consecration. And we'll see that beginning in chapter 8 through chapter 12. As we serve the Lord, we must always do our best. But without His help and His blessing, even our best work will never last. Psalm 127 verse 1 said, Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it, except the Lord keep the city. The watchman waketh, but in vain. Nehemiah knew that there was a desperate need for the people to come back to the Lord and to turn away from their secret sins that were grieving him. And so as we conclude this particular message this morning, let me just give you a number of key lessons. This passage teaches us First of all, that people are important to the Lord. People are important. When God wanted to take the next step in his great plan of redemption, he called on a group of Jews to leave the place of exile, return to their land. He gave them encouragement from prophets and leadership, from people who feared God, who wanted to honor him. The Lord didn't send a band of angels to do the job. He used common people, everyday people like you and me, who are willing to risk the future on the promises of God. 
Today, God is still calling people to leave their personal Babylons, their places of captivity, and follow him by faith. We as Christians are living in a day of reproach. And there are ruins all around us that need to be rebuilt. David asked, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, the answer is this. The righteous can rebuild what has been torn down and start over again. If you think that the enemy's victory is final, then you have lost your faith in God's promises. And by the way, you haven't read the end of the book either. There is always a new beginning for those who are willing to pay the price. And this passage also teaches us that God keeps accounts of his servants. He knows where we came from, what family we belong to, how much we give, and how much we do for him. And when we stand before the Lord, we're going to give an account for our lives before we receive our rewards, and we want to be able to give a good account. The third lesson is this, the Lord keeps his work going. The first group of Jewish exiles left Babylon for Judea in 538 B.C. And in spite of many difficulties and delays, they rebuilt the temple. They restored the worship. Eighty years later, Ezra and another group return. And 14 years after that, Nehemiah arrives and rebuilds the walls and the gates. And during the days of Zerubbabel, God raised up prophets like Haggai and Zechariah. They gave God's message to the people. And no matter how discouraging the situation might be, God is able to accomplish his purposes if we put our trust in him and do his will. The Lord keeps his work going. And finally, we must know we are in the family of God. No matter how much they argued or protested, the priest without legitimate genealogies could not enter the temple precincts and the minister at the altar. And God is not impressed with our first birth, but he wants, what he wants is that we experience a second birth and we become his children. If you're not certain of your spiritual genealogy this morning, you need to let someone take the Bible and show you how you can know you're in the family of God. Make sure your name is written down in heaven. It's amazing how much this really kind of falls into place with our own situation in our country today. People are important to God. Many times we think our government's not really, not really interested in people, but people are important to God. And God keeps account of his servants, and the Lord keeps his work going. I trust that you know that you're in the family of God this morning, and if you don't, that you'll come to him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven.